Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Broiler chickens today now grow almost seven times as quickly as they would naturally. And they said if a human baby grew as quickly as a broiler chicken, by the time she was one year old, she would weigh more than 650 pounds. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I have been, this is a podcast I wanted to do for a while. Um, you all know I've done a number of podcasts about animal suffering and sort of the way we treat animals. And a lot of those podcasts have been personal. They've been sort of about the way we think about it morally, the way we act individually, the way the system encourages us to act and to think and to feel and I've come to some of them with a, a lot of trepidation. Um, these are tough topics. It's a tough topic in today's episode, too. But but I wanted to come at it from a pretty different angle today. Something I've been become convinced of is that one thing we underestimate in this conversation is how much we live in a really unique technological moment and era. The way we treat animals in the industrial food production system it's only been true for a couple of decades. Before, a couple decades ago, it wasn't possible. I mean, I, I talk about it in the in the show with, with my guests today, but you would have had disease. You didn't have the genetic engineering and breeding. You couldn't do what we do today. You couldn't have this kind of cruelty on such an industrial scale. And it is a lot. It is a lot to ask people in the face of that to try to change it themselves, to take it on themselves to, to make everything different, to take the moral weight of that on themselves. It isn't to say that we shouldn't try. Um, you know, I think we should. But I'm realistic enough to know that most of us won't. And, you know, there are things for all of us that we do, um, myself very much included, where we're part of systems that are a lot bigger than us, that maybe you're not doing exactly the right thing. But it's hard to live any other way. What is interesting to me about this moment is it feels like we might be in an inflection point. We've had an age of animal cruelty enabled by technology, but there may be an off-ramp here also enabled by technology. It may be that in the long arc of this part of human history, that the exact same forces that got us to a point where, you know, I don't think the suffering is something we can justify. Um, I don't think it is something we can ignore. I think it is one of the the moral questions that should not be ignorable given the scale of it in our society. 
But I don't think the answer to it is all individual action, at least not when that individual action is really hard. People have tough lives. They need to feed their kids like they need food that is affordable, that that, that they can eat, that they can make, um, that they can find, uh, which is often a hard part, particularly if you live in certain parts of the country. But what's fascinating to me, what is encouraging to me, what makes me optimistic is how fast the technological advances are to find another way. Uh, Bruce Friedrich, he's been a guest on the show before. He's somebody who's had an enormous influence on my thinking uh, on this. He is the founder of the Good Food Institute, which is, it's a lot of things now. It's sort of a think tank and an investor and a connector and an advocate and, um, you know, is involved in court cases. He's at the center of, I think, one of the most exciting spaces in technology, which is this clean meat space, the plant-based meat, the cell-based meat. And he knows everybody and he sees everything. And so he can see something coming that, you know, we're getting hints of, but most of us can't access yet. And if he's right, if he's right about what's coming, we may be living through a moment when we're going to be able to make things so much better for so many creatures and for ourselves and for our planet. And that's great, right? So many of the conversations on this show are these hard problems that don't have any answers at all. And this is a conversation about the possibility that a hard problem does have an answer and that those of us out there can make a difference in it just by helping to create the market, just by looking for and being willing to choose some of these options, just by even knowing they exist. So this is a conversation about something in our society that you know I think is going really wrong, but also the possibility that, that, that we're here on the cusp of being able to help push it to be a lot more right in a way that doesn't require people to, to be ascetic. Um, just requires us to make different but totally reasonable and doable choices. Um, my email, as always, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Bruce Friedrich. Bruce Friedrich, welcome back to the podcast. I am delighted to be here, Ezra. Thank you. So how's it going? It's going incredibly well. Uh, way, you, you, know. you guys are doing a lot now. I feel like when we talked a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, something like that, Good Food Institute is like an impressive but small organization. And now it feels like you guys are everywhere. Yeah, we uh, we barely existed when last you and I chatted. And now we have 60 staff and five continents. And uh, we have uh, nine directors and four programmatic departments. And yeah, it's it's going extraordinarily well. I want to ask you about a bunch of the work you're doing, but I, I sort of want to do some context first, if that's sure. okay. Because uh, there's a conversation I've been wanting to have with you for a while, something I've been obsessing over a little bit, which is the way in which this moment in our food system and in particularly the way we treat and raise animals is pretty unique. 50, 60 years ago, um, speak as somebody who's on the technological side of a lot of this, could we have had the kind of industrial animal agriculture we have today? Well, no. I mean, it was it was using antibiotics in, I mean, it started with chickens. So there was a, a chicken farmer on the Delmarva Peninsula who got way more chickens than she bargained for. She ordered 100 and got 10,000 or something like that. Um, so she started shoving them into sheds and, and figured out how to grow more and more chickens. And uh, the answer to the question was drugs, so prophylactic antibiotics. So, can you explain why? Uh, yeah, in the conditions that uh, the conditions that farm animals are kept in, the confinement uh, is a breeding ground for disease. The animals are kept in conditions that would compromise their immune systems, would create disease, and massive numbers of them would die. But with antibiotics used prophylactically, so used on animals who are not sick, uh, it allows them to live through conditions that would otherwise be lethal. And you can cram 100,000 laying hens into a shed. You can cram 50,000 
breeder uh, broilers into a shed. You can cram thousands of pigs into a shed uh, if they're drugged up, essentially. The numbers on this are, are something crazy, right? Doesn't animal agriculture use the bulk of American antibiotics? Yeah, yeah. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, it's like 70% of antibiotics uh, are used in farm animals. And it's not to treat farm animals who are sick. It's to... This prophylactic, yeah, exactly. keeping them from getting sick because of the conditions. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I think about with this is... And I recognize you could have industrial agriculture without it, I think. But particularly when you're talking about chickens, um, to some degree when you're talking about pigs, there's a huge amount of breeding that's been done and genetic engineering. And you have these animals that they can't reproduce naturally and they can barely stand up. And like they they couldn't they, they don't make sense. They don't make sense as animals. They're like food with a cardiovascular system. It's like they're pre-food in yeah. this very strange way. Um you know, I know we've been breeding animals forever, right? Like a, the human beings and obviously evolution do, does it itself. But the ability to, you know, do artificial insemination in the, at the scale we do it now and to do genetic breeding and changing at the scale we do it now, there can be a sense that there's something natural about just eating meat. But what we're eating, what we're doing, it doesn't seem natural to me. It seems like a very strange technological moment. No, I mean, chickens were, you know, created in order to raise their young and do dust baths and root in the soil. And I mean, everything that happens with farm animals today, well, 99 percent of of farm animals uh, is extraordinarily unnatural. They never raise their young. They never root, root around in the soil. They never do anything they were designed to be. And I mean, at the University of Arkansas, some poultry scientists published a paper and they said uh, broiler chickens today now grow almost seven times as quickly as they would naturally. And they said if a human baby grew as quickly as a broiler chicken, by the time she was one year old, she would weigh more than 650 pounds. You know, I mean, imagine that Wait, a human what? baby, one year old, 650 pounds. That's uh, that's how quickly broiler chickens are growing these, these days. It's extraordinarily unnatural. The reason I think this is important is that the scale of animal cruelty feels to me like a problem technology has gotten us into. I mean, also our own decisions. I mean, I don't want to take human agency out of this, but the technology has enabled at the very least and that potentially only technology can get us out of. I guess one way to move us into this, whenever I have this kind of conversation on the podcast, I will get a lot of email from people saying something along the lines of, well, I hunt all my food or, you know, what about grass fed beef? To the best of your knowledge, what are the percentages of meat eaten in America? Um, not fish. We could talk about fish separately, but just meat that are hunted or otherwise like what you would consider humanely raised or all that happens to them is they're killed. Well, I, I mean, I don't know what the precise statistics are, but I mean, I know with uh, egg laying hens, with uh, chickens, with pigs, it's over 99 percent. I mean, even cage free is still factory farmed when you're talking about eggs. It's better than being in cages, uh, but it's still confinement agriculture. So, uh, yeah, for people who are going to eat meat, uh, hunting is you know, significantly better. You can make an, a strong ethical argument in favor of hunting. Uh, if you're going to eat meat that is farmed, grass-fed beef is obviously by far and away going to be your best option. I would still challenge people to look at slaughterhouses for these places. I would challenge people to learn about uh, how far these animals are shipped before they're slaughtered and what the slaughterhouses look like. It's not pretty, uh, but it's certainly way, way better than eating factory-farmed chickens or factory-farmed eggs or factory-farmed pigs, for sure. But so the, the technology side of this, I think, is important because I can have this conversation with you and I can 
it's almost like I can feel myself losing the audience, right? And I could feel myself losing myself of five or six or seven years ago. However, I don't remember when I started down this road to, to, to being radicalized on all this. But in the conversations I have with people, in, in, in the way it looks to me, like as much as there can be a tendency to want to make this a moral crusade, it increasingly seems that if there's going to be an answer to this, it's going to be technological. And I, I sometimes wonder if when the history of all this is written, it won't seem like this very strange and in some ways very cruel, but like arc. And, you know, technology sort of boosted us up above levels of cruelty that were beyond what were, I think, justifiable. But it also got us back out of it, um, such that we almost have these animals that are pre-meat now, that they don't exist as animals. They couldn't reproduce. They couldn't live a normal animal life. They, they exist for us to slaughter them. And they're built for that purpose. And they're put on antibiotics for that purpose. Like, they're not like natural animals. And the work you do seems to me to be the next step of that. Like, what if you could just take the animal out of the meat entirely? I guess one question is, like, can you actually do that at scale? Like, well, can that ever be as big as the kind of things we're talking about here? I mean, I think one thing to to sort of say as a preliminary observation is that this is not intentional cruelty. So like when you talk about, you know, Enlightenment Now and Steven Pinker and sort of the glow, growing moral evolution of people, uh, animals have been a part of that. So um, at Oklahoma State University, a researcher uh, did some research on the on the back of some research that, that the Sentience Institute did. The Sentience Institute is a, an animal protection uh, think tank, and they released a report indicating that 45% of Americans want to ban slaughterhouses. So the animal agriculture industry was incredulous, as you can imagine. They're like, no way. Uh, so they picked a researcher at Oklahoma State, uh, and that researcher replicated it. And sure enough, 45% of people want to ban slaughterhouses. So it's not cruelty as much as I think it's apathy or people don't care enough or people you know just can't when they're making their food choices, that's sort of very low on Maslow's hierarchy and people are not going to incorporate ethical concern for animals for the most part at that point or something. I'm not sure exactly. But you look at what happened in California and what happened in Massachusetts with ballot initiatives to make it illegal to confine animals in cages and crates. And across every demographic, those laws passed overwhelmingly. And in California, the first law that passed, it passed to the same year, 2008, when they made gay marriage illegal. So it's the far right to the far left. These laws passed overwhelmingly. And the forces of confinement agriculture are not attempting to defend it. What they're saying to people is you're going to have to pay more. This is going to decrease choice, which are sort of you know, those are like pull really well choice and I don't want to pay more. That pulls really well. And nevertheless, overwhelming majorities to the tune of 70 plus percent go, no, I'm happy to pay more. No, I don't think I should have this choice. Some things are simply unacceptable. So it's not, you know, cruelty in the same way, you know, Steven Pinker has that entire chapter of uh, his first book that is just like all of the torture devices uh, that were, you know, common in the Middle Ages. And it's like really tough reading. I wonder how many people actually get through that entire chapter. But our view of animals has evolved in a really positive way over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, it's just there's something innate in human beings that causes people to, you know, the cacophony of our lives when we're at the grocery store or we're ordering off a menu, you know, something click orders and we end up eating animal products. So one of the really great things about the technological ability to create meat from plants and to grow meat directly from cells is that people, what they like about meat 
is not that a live animal had to die. They like the taste. They like the texture. There's something, you know, biological uh, or emotional or cultural or whatever that caused people to want to eat meat. Uh, but we can grow meat from plants. We can grow meat directly from cells. And because both of these processes are so much more efficient um, and they don't require antibiotics and they require you know, so many fewer resources, we can actually absolutely scale them up. Um, and not only that, they will cost less and use fewer resources as we scale them up. So um, I think they're the future. And I don't think you know, there's not going to be you know, resistance because people already would prefer not to have slaughterhouses and, and factory farms. There's a bunch I want to pick up on in there, including resistance, because I think there will be. And I, I want to talk to you about what I think it will be. But I, I like what you said about cruelty. It, it, it reminds me of something that I've been wanting to, to address more on the podcast. Uh, Kate Mann, the philosopher, wrote this great book called Down Girl. It's a book about uh, misogyny, and the, the subtitle is called The Logic of Misogyny. And one of the points she makes, which I found really helpful for thinking about a lot of different things, is we have a tendency to want to apply a term like misogyny to an individual's motivations. Um, you know, that person hates women, right? And like, if you can't prove that, then you can't prove misogyny. And what she says is that misogyny is a, a social force, a structural force, a, a, an environment that women operate in, that, that, uh, that affects the individual lives of girls and women. And I think something similar can be talked about with racism. There can be this unbelievable, like, Olympics. Like, can you prove this person hates everybody who, as opposed to saying, you know, racism is a set of conditions that people um, contribute to knowingly, unknowingly, purposefully, non-purposefully that uh, are faced by um, people of color. Um, and, and similarly here, cruelty, right? I think that part of the difficulty of this conversation is that when you talk about it, the, the kinds of things you're talking about are such, they feel like such an indictment of the people participating in them. But when I say cruelty here, what I'm saying is that there is a reality that is cruel to the animals who face it, right? There is a, like, it is an unbelievably cruel reality. Not that people intend to be cruel. I mean, while you're talking, I was thinking about um, uh, cars, right? And like, I'm somebody who believes very strongly in global warming and believes very strongly in the threat that it poses. And I use fossil fuels all the time. Right. Um, I think we have like a like we need to make it easier to not. But there can be this tendency to try to load the moral weight of the world onto the individual's shoulders. And if the world does not make it manageable to live in that way, um, does not make it sort of doable to live in that way, it's very it's too much to put on individuals. And I I think we have like a language problem. There are a lot of words that we need to use to describe what is actually going on. But we don't know. It's like we almost need a tense where we can like make clear we're describing like an outcome and a society, not a motivation. Right. And like we don't have that tense most of the time. And I think it actually I think it messes up a lot of our conversations. I think it's part of like I'm always frustrated that you can't have these conversations without so many people feeling personally assaulted. And there can be this tendency to say, like, we'll get over it. Like, sorry, you feel bad. It's worse if you're actually facing these things. But on the other hand, because we need to have these conversations, it really does seem to me like a place where our language fails us. Yeah. I mean, if people stop listening, uh, that's not really very helpful. And we can be self-righteous, you know, as you were just, you know, no, you have to listen to this. But no, they don't have to listen to this. And for the Good Food Institute in particular, I mean, like we have really good relationships with Tyson Foods, with Smithfield Foods, with Purdue, with like huge chicken conglomerates, huge meat companies. Uh, and it's helpful to recognize that the people who run those companies, like they want to do something noble. They want to feed the world high quality protein. That's their goal. And when you chat with them, you know, they're like the part of what is happening is certainly the outcome 
you know, the cruel treatment of animals. But that's nobody's motivation in any of those companies. Um, and a lot of the people, you know, like they got into Tyson or Smithfield or whatever company, they got into it with really noble motivation. You know, it's a, it's essential to the world that people be fed. And it's interesting to see these companies sort of reconstituting themselves as protein companies um, and excited to move in this direction. I mean, excited to move in this direction because it's a more efficient way of producing meat. So it will be more profitable over time, uh, but also excited because it's innate in human beings that we want to be part of doing good in the world. And this is a way to do sort of even more good in the world. Uh, so it's helpful to sort of recognize that and recognize that, you know, again, this is not, like to the degree there's cruelty. It's not intentional on the part of really anybody. Like nobody like wakes up in the morning excited about factory farms or excited about slaughterhouses. It's sort of a, an ancillary effect of, uh, of our food system. Uh, and it's something that I think is more replaceable uh, by technology because there's not going to be a lot of defense of this industry. Let me ask you about something that is a little bit of a digression, but but will bring us back, which is I'm curious how you think of the overall ecosystem in which these conversations and this activism happens. Um, you were at PETA for many years, um, and now you run the Good Food Institute. And like that in itself is an evolution. I wonder, given your career, do you think that there is a role for the more confrontational animal rights organizations that that kind of challenging people to look at something they don't want to look at and don't want to think about is an important and within the overall context of, of, of the environment, uh, a useful form of activism? Or do you think that's something that over time we've seen hasn't worked and should maybe be let go of? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's tough for me to sort of criticize people who are attempting to what make the world a better place. Uh, they're attempting to change the zeitgeist. Um, and they're raising what is, I think, a, a very serious moral issue. And um, I think there are a lot of people, you know, like I don't know how uh, Yuval Harari got sort of animal rights, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was uh, confrontational activism that reached him. Um, it was certainly confrontational activists that reached me, if not confrontational activism specifically. Um, and, and I think the sort of uh, the people who are raising the moral issue, the sort of Jeremiah's of our time, seems to me like that that is an important function in society. It certainly also seems, to, you know, like we in 2017, per capita meat consumption was the highest it's ever been. In 2018, it's going to be even higher. Uh, so as a sort of solution to the problem, it doesn't seem like it's all of the solution, even if it's part of the solution. You brought up Steven Pinker's work a couple of minutes ago. And in general, I count myself as a. Uh, Certainly a fan of Better Angels, which I think is a, a really strong book and Enlightenment Now, I think makes a um, like has a lot of important things to say. And I, I, I think I broadly put myself in like the pinkerish category of think of believing that things are getting better. But the two places where I have a real question on that, um, whether or not that is a true way of thinking about this era, is um, the amount of animal suffering and global warming. And global warming is like a like we will see, you know, Um and I think the the optimistic view on animal suffering is a technology like the same thing that has led to so much um, improvement in so much else will will lead to the improvement here. But when you say what you just said a second ago, it was per, per capita meat consumption higher this year than last year, expected to be higher next year than this year. The rise of China the is oh, yeah. just Global, driving it like an unbelievable amount. And you know, sometimes I think the the negative way to think about it, the the grim way to think about it, would be that. There is a huge externality of all this human progress. And there's a very famous um, Ursula Le Guin story 
Is it the dispossessed? I don't remember. It's the one where there's basically a utopian society, but it turns out that the utopian society runs on, um, importantly, like the utter torture. I think it's in this story of just one person. And like at the end, it's like, you know, the the person, the people realize is some of them just having to walk out of this utopia because like the the, the connection there is too, is too grim. And there, there are some dimensions of that in our society, right? That, you know, we're having all this development, but, you know, the cost is that we're going to torture all these animals or we are having all this development, but the cost is we're going to torch the climate and like maybe it all work out and we hope it will. And hopefully, you know, technology will get us out of the problems we're creating. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't, then our uh, descendants are going to face a, a world that we did not intend them to face, even though we created it for them. This is like my darkest thought. Like if I were going to like fall into a pit, like a like a psychological pit, it would be this one. It's not clear to me. Are we the heroes of our story or not? But I mean, I guess the thing is, all of that could be true. And I mean, I, I don't think Pinker disputes any of that. I know you chatted with him about the, the animal aspect of it. I, I think you chatted with him about climate change, too. We did a little bit. I think he's a little too. I would not say he disputes it. I think he does not. I'd say that the space it takes up in his cosmology is smaller than the space it takes up in mine. He does not dispute it. I think he would agree with most of what I said. He's just more optimistic than I am. Yeah, but I mean, I think you can simultaneously say the, you know, the moral arc of the university is long, but it bends toward justice. You know, the Dr. King quote, like that can be true. Um, and we can have huge issues with technology that cause this sort of, you know, like nobody is excited. I mean, even if they're global warming deniers, like nobody thinks, yes, let's burn as much fossil fuel as possible. Like if you could not harm human progress and burn less fossil fuel, people would be down like with that. If you could produce meat that people want to eat and not cause animals to suffer, like you wouldn't find anybody who opposes that so or anybody who's even true. apathetic to that. I don't think that's true. And I think it's not true on a couple of levels. And 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 this is one thing I want to push you because when I uh, when I go to the Good Food Institute conference or when I when I've been in some of these other clean meat kind of gatherings or or have looked at this and have talked to the people about this and like tried to do some of the reporting on it, one of the things that comes up a lot that I think is going to be a real hurdle here is this idea of naturalness. There are I was actually just reading a piece in The Guardian just last night, um, although I think it's from a little bit ago that is attacking all of these meat replacements with basically the argument that like, this is highly processed artificial food. Like this is Franken food. Like I prefer eating meat. Like I want to eat real natural food. And there is a tension here um, that, that a lot of people feel where there's a sense that, you know, if you're eating like, you know, I think this is the intuition behind the Paleolithic diet, right? Which isn't, in my view, based on all that much, except for the view that like we should eat things that we could have eaten, you know, 600 years ago or even further back than that. And certainly Michael Pollan very famously has a line, you know, eat food, mostly plants, not too much, but also says, make it stuff your grandmother would be able to recognize. And it does seem to me that it is not that people want the suffering. Like, I don't think they want that, but I think they want it to be an animal, um, and I think that's going to be like, that seems to me to be the real hump in the market. You know, there are certain people who want to make that jump, but there are a lot more who, you know, they don't want things that are not natural and they don't want things that are, um, seem to be posing as something else. And I'm curious how you think about getting over that. Well, I mean, you look at what happened with plant-based milk, uh, 15 or 20 years ago, you couldn't find plant-based milk in grocery stores. You couldn't find it in coffee shops. If you did track down a carton of the stuff in sort of the nether regions of your, uh, co-op. Uh, it tasted like liquefied paste. 
Uh, it's gone from essentially 0% of the market to 13% of the market, where plant-based meat right now is about a third of 1% of the market. So even just replicating what has happened with plant-based milk takes us from about $700 million to $26 billion, assuming, you know, sort of no market growth at all. So it's obviously quite a bit more than that. Uh, but I think you may be, I think you may be um, buying into sort of the foodie myth. Um, I think foodies care a lot about what you're talking about now, but there are sort of some dichotomous food choice, uh, food choices that people make, like it's, it's price. Everybody considers price. Everybody considers, does it taste good? Um, and people may not be sort of thinking about, is it convenient? But if it's not there, people are not going to eat it. Uh, and when researchers do sort of weighted analyses, it's really just price, taste, and convenience that even break zero. Like that's the stuff that really matters. And if you look at what people are buying and you talk with people about what they're buying, price, taste, and convenience are the things that, that matter to people. So I'm extraordinarily bullish on the idea of taking legumes and processing them and turning them into plant-based meat. It will be a healthier product. It will be a significantly less resource-intensive product. Um, and because it's so much more efficient, it'll be a less expensive product. If we can replicate what people like about meat, which is, I think, the taste, the texture, and the fact that it's inexpensive, but make it even less expensive, we'll have a massive shift over. And then for the people who don't shift to plant-based for the reasons you just enumerated, then we have then we have meat grown directly from cells, clean meat. And that is a more pure product. So then you would have to make the argument that what people like about meat is that it's an animal who is grown and slaughtered. And I think if you compare, like people don't like the way that chickens and pigs and other animals are raised and slaughtered today. They don't think very much about it. But when you have two products and one of them is Memphis Meats, it's live streaming on the internet, extraordinarily boring because it's, you know, it looks like a brewery. Um, and then you have the other place that is passing laws to make it illegal to find out what happens both on the farm and in the slaughterhouse. And the meat that's grown directly from cells doesn't have antibiotic residues. It doesn't have any other drugs. It doesn't have um, any of the campylobacter or other food pathogens. It's like actually pure meat. I don't think once that product's less expensive, we're going to have any trouble selling it to people. So two, two questions on this. Let me, let me go with this one first, actually. What is the year that you think there will be cell-grown meat in a grocery store that I can buy? probably two to five years away. That could be accelerated, though. I mean, I, the thing about the thing about both plant-based meat and cell-based meat is that they are solution. They are a solution to problems that governments know they have. Um, so, I mean, you read about the end of working antibiotics. Have you met our government? <laughs> well, it doesn't just have to be the U.S. government. I mean, Fair like, enough. China, China wants to be the global leader uh, on the Paris Climate Agreement. China has huge issues with food security, with water quality with uh, water resources, the amount of water, with food safety, um, and they're using antibiotics that have been banned in the rest of the world. Like, uh, they, and, and they put more money into ag R&D than the United States does. Are they so putting you, that money into plant, into clean Not meats? yet, but they should be. So, I mean, that, that's my point. I, I think you're looking at somewhere on the order of, of two to five years for expensive cell-based meat um, in some grocery stores. But if governments recognize, hey, we want to meet our obligations under the Paris Climate Agreement, we're not going to do it unless meat consumption goes down. Meat consumption is going up and it's going to continue to go up unless we give people an alternative and they start sinking significant resources into this. Or they look at antibiotics and the end of working you know, antibiotics, which is the end of medicine as we know it. Or they look at food safety or whatever else. Like government should be sinking billions of dollars into plant-based 
and clean meat R&D. If they do, it could happen a lot more quickly. Give me your, I recognize as I ask this, that you're someone who, you're, you're in this space, so you know you, you can see much further into the future in it than I can. And also, there will be a tendency, just like the person who gets into the space in the way you have will be optimistic about it. But give me, give me what you would call your conservative case for what is available to me in a supermarket in 30 years. The conservative case? The conservative case for 30 years. Because, and, and the reason I ask this, just to be very clear, is that in a funny way, we can talk about two to five years, which is not that long, and it can feel very long. But like the change in two to five years will be modest, and the 30 years, which is not that long, or 25, you mean, pick it, the change can be much more dramatic. I'm, I'm curious what you think will be true on that timetable. Well, I mean, I, I guess uh, there are, certainly a variety of ways to look at it. Uh, there's the optimistic case, which is that the only meat in the grocery store is it's either plant-based meat, it's clean meat, or it's regenerative agriculture. So like truly high welfare. And the people who talk about natural, this is actually natural. It's the grass-fed beef. It's the, you know, the chickens and the pigs and the and the uh, turkeys who are actually, you know, heritage breeds and allowed to lead, lead their lives. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's optimistic, but it's also entirely doable. I mean, we just have to stay on our current trajectory. So uh, plant-based meat sales were up 23% year, the most, most recent statistics year on year. If you continue to grow at 20% per year, in 30 years, it's 100% plant-based. Um, so that strikes me as doable. And if governments recognize that this is the solution to how we keep antibiotics working, that this is the solu solution to food contamination, that it's the solution to climate change, uh, it could happen a lot more quickly than that. So um, I think that is both the optimistic but also realistic trajectory is in, in 30 years, we're just not making meat uh, from animals anymore. And it's, it, you know, you look at what has happened with uh, our phones. We went very, very quickly from landlines to cell phones. Um, or you look at what's happened from cam with cameras. We went from film to digital cameras pretty quickly. You look back further, um, the transition from horse and buggy uh, to automobiles happened very, very quickly. So I think once the tech is good, we are so early days on plant-based meat actually attempting to replicate meat. I mean, Pat Brown um, and Ethan Brown, Ethan Brown founded Beyond Meat in 2009, didn't have a national product until 2013. Uh, Pat Brown founded Impossible Foods in 2011, didn't have a national product until last year, um, start, started to roll the stuff out, I think, at the end of 2016. Um, so the idea of thinking about... And for people who don't know these companies, these are now both multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. Never mind, they're not multi-billion dollar companies. Well, they've companies. raised uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Right, so at a valuation Yeah, their valuation is probably over a billion, Yeah, um, each of them. And um, so the idea of thinking about plant-based meat as not for vegetarians, but thinking about plant-based meat as a way to make meat from plants is a fairly new concept. But, but let's say that you're listening to this, you know, there's no way we're going to get rid of most meat. Just like... Be, just be more consumeristic about it. Like, what what will I be able to buy? Can I buy lab-grown shrimp? But but like, wait a minute, yeah. I mean, Ezra, why, why not? So, like, you think about the fact that, right, meat, meat is a, an extraordinarily inefficient commodity. So the most efficient meat is chicken, and it takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of that animal's flesh. Nine calories in for one calories out. So that's nine times as much land, nine times as much water, nine times the pesticides and herbicides. And then you're shipping those crops to a feed mill. You're operating the feed mill. You're shipping the feed to the farm. You're operating the farm. You're shipping the animals to the slaughterhouse. You're operating the slaughterhouse. This is an inefficient and expensive system. If you can grow those crops and process those crops into plant-based meat, and we can figure out, and we can, how to replicate everything that people like about meat, but using plants, 
um, I think a huge portion well, see, of it goes in that direction. Of, that you don't have to convince me on on the inefficiency of meat, but that's actually the part I'm trying to I'm trying to get you to draw the picture of because right now I've been to these conferences and you know it is not on shelves. There is I would say in the last like three or four years we got pretty good burgers. Yeah. Like pretty good non-lab growing, like, you know, plant-based meat burgers. Like I'm a big fan of the Beyond Meat Burger, um, the Impossible Burger. Like that stuff is a real jump over And we only just started. And we just began. So you can see further, like you invest in some of these companies. The thing that I don't know how to um, rate is in 10 years, what do I have access to as a consumer? In 20 years, what do I have access to as a consumer? So is what you're telling me that you believe that, it is ridiculous to talk about the number of lab-grown and plant-based choices as being any smaller in their diversity or lower in their quality or affordability than the, let's say, traditionally or industrially raised meat product. Because like, if that's the case, then the world you're talking about becomes plausible. If it always lags behind, if you can get burgers, but you can't get you know, whatever, bacon. Like right now, I would say there is no good vegan bacon. Like yeah. it does not exist. Sure. Um, can you get good vegan bacon in 10 years? Uh, in 10 years, sure. I think you will be able to get pretty much everything uh, in 10 years plant-based. Uh, and cell-based, it's cert- I mean, the more our scientists dive into the idea of growing meat from cells, the more enthusiastic they get about the possibility of scaling it up. Um, if we can scale it up with anything, we can scale it up with everything. So, um, so that's I, interesting. It's not. It's not like burgers are much much easier than I don't know prime rib. Well, I mean they're easier. Than, they're easier than prime rib, but prime rib is doable uh, for the same reason that burgers are doable. So there are some technological hurdles that are going to exist with like sort of you know cuts of meat as opposed to ground meat, uh, which is why most people are starting with the idea of ground meat uh, for both the cell based products. Uh, and the plant-based products, although um, Impossible, you probably saw the Consumer Electronics Show, they won three awards. They won the Most Impactful Award, uh, they won this sort of uh, Most Innovative Award, and they won the Best of the Best. So they won at the Consumer Electronics Show. For what show. product? Uh, the Impossible Burger 2.0. The Impossible Burger 2.0. Yeah. So, and they announced that they're that they're working on steak. Um, so I think you know it's going to be a harder it's going to be a harder technological challenge, but there's no reason uh, that it's not eminently doable. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. 
Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. So the political economy of this is also interesting. In a world where you had these meats rapidly scaling up, these live-grown meats, these plant-based meats, you're going to have a backlash from the industry. Some of that backlash will be commercial. They'll try to come up with new products. They'll try to make their current products cheaper. You know, competition can can push people in a lot of directions, but some of it will be regulatory. And there's already an effort, um, you, we've seen it in Missouri, to stop, uh, like, say, Beyond Meat and others from labeling their product meat. Uh, there's an effort that is currently being considered by Donald Trump's FDA, which I think has, oddly enough, been, for the most part, a bright spot in the Trump administration, but has begun taking seriously this challenge that you should not be able to call almond milk milk or soy milk milk because the consumer may be confused that almonds don't have nipples or, or like something like I'm not 100 percent clear on who is being protected here. But we are seeing uh, an effort to use the long arm of the law to stop this stuff. We've seen it before. Margarine, they initially tried to make people dye yellow, uh, pink, I think it was. I'm, I'm curious. Can you give me a little bit of how you think about that set of challenges? Well, let me back up for a second um, and just say uh, in terms of nomenclature, um, cell based meat works. Uh, clean meat works, a nod to clean energy. So clean energy is energy that's better for the environment. Clean meat is meat that's better for the environment. Um, Lab-grown isn't really fair uh, at scale. It's going to look like a brewery. At scale, it'll be, you know, basically... Um, cultivators, massive meat cultivators, and it will look You're like... You're chilling my free speech, Bruce. Well, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that we, you know, we don't refer to uh, lab-grown Cheerios or, you know, every every beer starts in a food lab. That's fair. Every processed food starts in a food so lab. So cell-based. Yeah, cell-based is good. Clean is good. But, Either one. But the I'm, I'm interested in the other part of it, meat, because there's a real effort right now. I think you told me as we were coming in that a number of states are... There's an effort in a number of states like to follow nine what states, Missouri's yeah. trying to do. So there's an effort to not allow stuff to be called meat at all. Yeah. No. So, I mean, I, I guess the, the second thing to say, though, is the the powerful forces are the North American Meat Institute, um, the National Chicken Council, the really big companies. Doesn't like it sound Tyson like a Foods. council of chickens? <laughs> it does. Like just like a bunch of chickens get together and like work on chicken issues? Yeah. No, it, it does. That's, that's, uh, that's hilarious. But it is not. Um, and, um, those folks are pretty supportive. Like they're, you know, they're, they're more supportive of the cell based than the plant based, but they're pretty supportive of both. Um, like meeting place magazine has now run repeated meeting place MEAT. So it's a meat industry trade journal and they have repeatedly, yeah, they've repeatedly, they've run a cover story. They've run multiple op-eds, um, all supportive of the idea of protein diversification, And basically what they're saying is if consumers want plant-based meat, if consumers want cell-based meat, we are the meat industry and we will do it for them. Um, And at GFI, we have, as I mentioned earlier, we have really good relationships with all of these massive meat conglomerates. Um, None of these people care if uh, they're raising and slaughtering animals. They're perfectly happy to be doing plant-based versions uh, and cell-based versions of meat. And those are the people who have 
kind of the real power and they're supportive. Similarly, on the issue of, of cell-based meat, um, FDA and USDA have been super supportive. Uh, both Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, and Sonny Perdue, the secretary of agriculture, they have both said exactly the right things and put their sort of, you know, their words and their actions have aligned. Um, and what they're saying is this is coming and we should be the first. We don't want China to lap us. We don't want Israel to lap us. We don't want the Netherlands to lap us. Like the United States should throw its weight behind this technology and very quickly uh, get to a regulatory oversight regime that makes this as smooth as possible, which is what the National Academy of Sciences, they uh, released a report a couple of years ago about biotechnology, uh, like really promising biotechnology. And one of the things that they flagged was cell-based meat. Um, so yes, there is some resistance from cattle ranchers, it's exclusively cattle ranchers. Um, so like Missouri, it was cattle ranchers that passed the law in Missouri uh, that bans the use of meat terminology, any meat terminology um, on plant-based meat or cell-based meat packages. Um, very unlikely that, there, that, that this is going to pass constitutional muster. Um, so we have joined the ACLU of Missouri and Tofurky and the Animal Legal Defense Fund in suing in Missouri. Um, and we will do the same thing in all of the, you know, we're going to fight it legislatively in the eight more states that have now um, proposed this sort of legislation. Uh, so we'll attempt to stop it. Um, some states will not want the legal battles or the bad PR that comes with censorship. Um, like they look pretty pathetic if they're telling you that you're going to, I mean, Missouri says you can literally serve a year in jail for calling a veggie burger a veggie burger. No joke. It's like literally what the law says. Um, other states are actually now saying that if you're going to have a plant-based burger or a cell-based burger, two states have said you have to call it imitation. Um, so imitation beef, imitation chicken or, or whatever, not, you know, not plant-based, not vegan, not vegetarian. You have to call it imitation. So you've got both censorship. Who's which, passed that? Um, nobody's passed it. Oh, it's been uh, proposed though? Yeah. Two of the, two of the eight states have proposed it. I don't remember which two. Um, but, um, you know, so the first amendment very clearly protects corporate speech. Um, you have to have a very good reason for the government to do it, um, and you have to come up with the least restrictive possible um, way of censoring. There's just no way this passes, which is why the ACLU of Missouri is, has joined us in suing the state of Missouri. We're going to win that one. Um, any other states that end up passing this sort of legislation, we will sue them, um, and we, that we will win. And it ends up just being a PR debacle for them. Like, it, you know, it looks pathetic that is they're it, trying to censor their competition. It, it does seem to me that... One of the dystopic ways to think about this is that you you have a regulatory effort that ends with, you know, these things being called imitation media. I take your point on the constitutionality. But the other piece of this I always think about are the ag gag laws, which I think in, in something pretty encouraging, Iowa Supreme Court just overturned Iowa's ag gag law. And, and, and for people who don't know, these are laws that basically make it illegal um, with very long potential jail times behind them to go in and take photographs and um, basically do public surveillance of industrial agriculture uh, to see if they're actually following, uh, you know, proper animal treatment methods. And so what you're doing is making it illegal to see how your food is actually being made. It does seem to me like a quite profound statement of weakness on the part of these industries to be, you know, trying to fight about whether or not you can use their words or see what they really do. Um, you know, I could read that as optimistic um, in that, that, you know, like maybe that's the best evidence we really have that this stuff is beginning to take off and being seen as a threat or pessimistic because we have seen a lot of ag gag laws actually pass. I'm curious how you see it in the in the context of the whole of the whole story. 
Yeah, I mean, Utah's and Idaho's ag-gag laws were also overturned in the courts, and I don't think there have been any ag-gag laws proposed in the last three or four years. I think we're going to see the exact same thing happen with these meat censorship laws, these meat-gag uh, laws. And I don't know. I mean, Temple Grandin, who I think there's a lot that's good about her, but she's also sort of supportive of big meat. And she called the ag gag laws the stupidest thing the meat industry ever did. And I think that's right. Um, I think probably you're going to see some of the, you know, the North American Meat Institute and the National Chicken Council and um, other big meat industry in- interests trying to stop uh, what appeared to just be the cattle industry from passing these absurd laws, uh, because there's really, I mean, uh, you've got the civil libertarians and the libertarians opposed to these laws. So the civil libertarians are opposed to them on free speech grounds. The libertarians are opposed to them because they basically are attempting to stomp on competition by censoring competition. But from both sides, there is not support for the idea that you can't call soy milk soy milk or a veggie burger a veggie burger. So I think it's going to be a very short lived sort of uh, a whole bunch of laws are going to be proposed. Maybe a few of them will pass. Um, they will lose in the courts. Um, and then this whole thing is going to go away. You you say you say that about the libertarians. And I, I totally grant that the libertarians may be and probably are on the right side of this one. You know, you know, the coalitions here and I don't. There is some part of me that like kind of shakes my head. Um you know, when I turn on Fox News and there's just endless freaking out about like some college kids protesting something somewhere in Maine, um, but like no concern at all that the long arm of the state might decide that it is literally illegal to call a veggie burger a veggie burger or that you can't print milk on a bottle of soy milk. Um, it is always really interesting to me. And you do not have to make the enemies I make, so you're, you can feel free to pass on this one. But it's always interesting to me what freaks out the kind of quote unquote defenders of free speech in this country and what just kind of like passes by is no big deal, um, practically given when the government is actually behind one kind of restriction on speech and not another. I mean, we're a couple miles from the direct action everywhere folks who are facing huge jail time for their work, basically violating ag gag laws to, to show animal suffering. And it has not become like a huge cause celeb on like the free speech right in ways that always make me wonder a little bit like what we're really arguing about there. It is striking to me how much of the counterattack on this is using the government to actually regulate speech. And I mean, I, I take your point. Maybe all that will go away and our constitutional protections here are powerful enough that it won't survive. But um, I don't know. I'm also sometimes a cynic about how much interest groups can really get done in this country. Well, I, I mean, I will say that uh, without very much effort on our part, so we hadn't even had a, a full-time lobbyist uh, for more than like five or six months, and we were able to get into the Senate appropriations uh, report a call for additional research dollars for plant-based meat research. Um, and we are meeting with enthusiasm from the left to the right, from the Freedom Caucus to the Progressive Caucus, with the idea of using markets and food technology, with the idea of using plant-based meat and cell-based meat to solve the problems of industrial animal agriculture. So we're not going in and asking them to get rid of sort of any of the protections for big ag, but we are going in and saying, let's fund these alternatives. And we're, we're getting an enthusiastic response, you know, sort of across the board. And on the idea of censoring almond milk or soy milk or veggie burgers, um, I don't think they have much in the way of political allies in the federal government. 
Um, Scott Gottlieb, what he said um, in his sort of announcing the call for input on the idea of a new rule was certainly concerning, uh, but he has since made multiple statements about First Amendment and multiple statements about the fact that obviously um, almonds don't lactate um, and multiple statements about the fact that dictionaries define soy milk and almond milk as soy milk and almond milk. Um, and incidentally, so does the U.S. So does the FDA. And it has for many years. So I'm not sure. I mean, the, the dairy industry you know, fights in a different way, I think, from the rest of agriculture. They're sort of in the same camp uh, as the cattle ranchers. So um, they would like to censor their op opponents. Uh, but I don't think they have I don't think they have that many allies in Congress for the idea of censorship um, or in the regulatory agencies. And especially once you sit down with people and say, is this really like, do you really want to censor corporations uh, and put your thumb on the scales of free competition in this way? Most people don't want to um, in Congress or the regulatory agencies. So I, I think there are you know, they've sort of been powerful for a really long time and they can you know, maybe make a little bit of an advance and certainly in state legislatures more of an advance. But the Charles Koch Institute doesn't support what they're doing. Cato doesn't support what they're doing. Um, the sort of key libertarian institutions don't support the idea of this sort of censorship. Let me ask you about another piece of the science and, and maybe to transition into this, I'll ask you about the political economy of the science. You have made the point a couple of times here, and I think it's a true point, that given many of the stated goals of our government and global governments, right, making food cheaper, um, our government has its issues on how things about climate change right now, but at other times has, you know, considered it quite real. Um, and certainly parts of the government care quite a bit about it. And, you know, the um, plenty of the, the national scientific funding organizations fund a lot of important work on climate change. This is a place where it seems like a not that big investment by the scale of these investments could have uh, a huge impact. I mean, there's, you know, it seems to me there's somewhere between like 10 and 20, you know, companies that are anywhere near commercialization in this space, um, you know, from being at your conference and others. If you began seeing a year on year investment of five, 10, 15, 20 billion dollars, which would not be a huge scientific investment by the standards of these things, it could, it seems to me it could accelerate this a lot. But it seems to me the political economy of that would be you'd have a big outcry from some of these organizations that, you know, it's fine for Beyond Meat to do what it wants over on its own. But the government began putting its weight behind it. That, that would be tougher. I'm curious how you think about that basic research question. Are we funding it enough? Um, is that just something that people often thought to do because it's new? Or is it something that there's real political resistance to? There is not political resistance to it. And it is it is our legislative priority, number one. So our lobbyist, the number one goal of our lobbyist. And we, and we have uh, people in India, Israel, Brazil, Asia Pacific, and we're hiring in Europe. Um, and the two things that we're focusing on internationally um, one of them is finding the scientists to do the work, and the other is finding the money for them to do the work. And we're going to governments and we're saying to governments, look, you care about food safety, you care about climate change, you care about food security, you care about keeping antibiotics working. The meat industry, like the amount of meat that your populations are eating uh, is causing these harms and education is not going to do the trick. You need to give people alternatives. So you should be putting significant resources into plant-based and cell-based R&D. And because it's so new, it's not happening yet, but I'm super optimistic uh, about our capacity to make this happen. And we are meeting with enthusiasm in the U.S. government. So we've um, already gotten the Institute of Food and Agriculture to do a call for proposals focused on plant-based meat and cell-based meat. Uh, and I think, you know, it's uh, it's going to take some work, but it just makes 
such tremendous sense uh, that I think we will absolutely see governments investing resources in this in this space. And it's worth noting that what happened with both plant-based meat and cell-based meat is we went from I have an idea to I have a company. And with all of the sort of clean energy, all of the renewable energies, there's like a base of scientific research from which private industry is building. With plant-based meat and cell-based meat, there's really close to nothing um, in terms of a base of scientific research. So all the work that's happening at Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods um, or all of these other companies, it's all proprietary. There's probably a fair bit that's duplicative because it's proprietary. Um, and not that much money could do a tremendous amount of good to accelerate these technologies. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Tell me a little bit about the science here and recognizing that I'm somebody who did not do great in my science classes growing up. What are the big challenges in scaling this up or particularly bringing the cell-based meat down to uh, affordable levels? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's plant-based meat and there's cell-based meat. Right. And there are significant... And plant-based meat, there's a fair amount of that on market now. There is a fair amount of it on market now, but as you rightly pointed out, like the vast majority of it is sort of for vegetarians and flexitarians. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got some pretty good burgers at this point that a lot of people who eat meat really like. Um, that's how come there, you know, you've got the Impossible Burger at White Castle, you've got the Beyond Burger uh, at Carl's Jr. and TGI Fridays. Um, but for the most part, like really considered and concerted activity to biomimic meat with plants is a very new endeavor. 
Um, and very little has been done in sort of open access research on plant-based and on cell-based. Um, and interestingly, I think, uh, when GFI, when I started working on GFI three years ago, really sort of assumed that plant-based, because there's so much of it, um, the science had been worked out. Whereas with cell-based, because three years ago, there literally wasn't, you know, there were three companies that were starting to get formed. Um, we've gone from three to more than 20 in just three years, but there were three start companies starting to get formed and none of those, the three of them had yet incorporated. They were, they were that new between the three of them. They had not raised half a million dollars. Um, three years ago, they were that new. Um, and now we have more than 20 companies. So assumed that the cell based would probably be the tougher scientific nut to crack. Uh, it turns out that's not true. And the reason for that is that therapeutics, tissue engineering for medicine, cross applies to food. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So so what we assumed to be true three years ago was you had cell lines that you had to cause to multiply and grow. You had scaffolds that they would multiply and grow on. You had the media that you fed to them. Um, and then you had to have to put them into bioreactors and make the bioreactors bigger and bigger. Like all of that is still true. Nothing about the science of cell-based meat um, and how we think about it has changed significantly. But what we've learned with plant-based meat is up until Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, it was basically, let's take soy or wheat, and really the waste products of soy oil and wheat carbohydrates. So it was the waste products of soy oil and you know pasta and bread, um, the protein from the soy and the protein from the pasta and bread. And let's sort of figure out if we shove it through an extruder, which is a decades old technology, and it comes out on the other side, you know, is it meaty enough that vegetarians can, you know, eat it at Thanksgiving? And the answer to that was yes, but it's a really small market. It's, you know, it's, it's $700 million now. It probably caps at a billion dollars a year, if that's how you're thinking about it. Um, and what I remember early generation Tofurkeys, and it was not a great scene. They're, they're getting better and better. They are. I, I, like their, I like their sausages now. Yeah, no, they have a they have a bunch of really phenomenal products. But uh, I mean, every, one of the really cool things about Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat is everybody's up in their game. Um, so you know, you look at, at Morningstar and Gardein and Boca and Tofurky. I think those are still the top four, um, and they're making their products better and better and better because competition is awesome. Um, and they had seen their market as you know capped at about a billion dollars. Now they see it capped in the United States at two hundred billion dollars, and they're thinking about it differently and they're innovating. But, and t talk to me about that difference, right? You were saying, look, there's a difference between the market where you're extruding waste products into a turkey-shaped brown loaf, and that's a small market. And then there's this market that is not just for vegans and, and, and vegetarians. And what is the difference between a product that is plant-based and it's for vegetarians and a product that is plant-based and it is not just for vegetarians? Is that just marketing? Like what, what, no. what, what puts something on the other end of that uh, line? Well, I mean, you have to be thinking about people who like meat. You have to be thinking, you know, if somebody has no ethical considerations and no health considerations and they just really like meat, so that's what you start with. And they're going to make their decision on the basis of does this taste awesome um, and is it reasonably priced? Uh, that is a, you know, that's everybody, right? That's 100% of the market. Uh, whereas if you're thinking, you know, what can sort of look like meat and maybe sort of taste like meat and maybe sort of have the texture 
Um, that's pretty much vegetarians and like, you know, people who are considering things that the vast majority of people, even whole food shoppers, is not foremost in their mind when they're thinking about what it is that they're going to eat. So you're talking about the difference between, a you know, in the United States, a billion dollar market and a 200 billion dollar per year market. And that's plant-based meat. And, you know, Bill Gates wrote this. Uh, he's an investor in Beyond Meat. And he wrote a blog, The Future of Food. And one of the things he says in The Future of Food, he says, what I just tasted is not just a clever meat substitute. What I just tasted is the future of food. And he points out that the vast majority of plant ba- plants have not been tried for their capacity to turn them into plant-based meat. So sort of pea is all the rage now. You've got the pea milks and you've got the pea... Pea, pea protein yeah. and pea-based, yeah. Yeah, pea, pea protein. I just want to make sure that <laughs> nobody misinterprets you. But uh, but it, it didn't, you know, it was, a, it was sort of happenstance that caused it to be peas. It could just as easily have been, you know, a wide variety of other pulses rather than peas. I, I was, um, I think I was at a lecture by, or a presentation by the Impossible Foods folks, and they were saying that the like the best protein you could possibly get is from leaves. It's just like there's no accessible source of it. Like actually getting it out is is, is very tough. But it made me realize that there's a lot more protein out there than I had understood. Um, oh yeah, if there no, was the the work done to make it available. Yeah, I mean there are people experimenting with oats, with lupin, with canola, with cow with cow beans, like uh, with garbanzo beans. Like there, it, there's there's no. I mean you know soy and wheat was really just sort of an accident of there's all this protein and we don't know what to do with it. So let's, you know, cram it together and make vegetarians eat it. Uh, Peas was just because Ethan Brown stumbled on some research at the University of Missouri and turned it into a company, Um, which is one of the reasons that we're so excited about doing more and more of this sort of research. And uh, GFI does have, you know, we just got um, $3 million in, in grant money to do a call for proposals focused on plant-based meat and cell-based meat R&D. We've selected eight projects for plant-based and six projects for cell-based. Uh, and it's you know basically more than doubling the amount of open access research that has been done in all of human history uh, in these two fields. that's not that much money. No, it's not much money at all. But I mean, you look at the projects that we're funding and they're like really exciting for their capacity uh, for other companies to build on the work that we are going to be you know, creating in an open access way. Recognizing that you can't predict every twist and turn of the science, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, what is cell-based meat better at and what is plant-based meat better at? Do we need both of them or do they have different strengths or is one of them just going to eat the other? Well, I mean, I you know, plant-based will still be more efficient, most likely. I mean, there could be innovations that cause cell-based. They could come up with media recycling and, and other uh, ways to make cell-based more and more and more efficient. But most likely, plant-based will be more efficient um, and most likely the scientists will be able to biomimic everything in meat and about meat that people like. So that would cause you, and that does cause Pat Brown to say, plant-based is absolutely going to win um, and cell-based is going to be nowhere for those reasons. In my experience, there are a lot of people like the people you mentioned who just, they want unprocessed uh, and they want meat from an animal. So again, I, I don't know what it is that causes people to like actually want to eat animals, but a lot of people do. But they will be, um, I'm convinced, fine with meat as long as it's real meat. If it is you know, grown in essentially a meat brewery rather than requiring a farm and a slaughterhouse. So there will be some people, I think, who will want regeneratively farmed animals, like truly animals who led natural lives and were treated well and were slaughtered as painlessly as possible. It might even be more of that than there is now. 
Uh, but most people, what it is that they like about meat is not the live animal who is slaughtered. And, and if we can give them meat uh, that is more pure, it's more clean, it's the exact same product, it costs less, it requires fewer resources, it doesn't have the antibiotic uh, inputs, you know, I don't. I don't know what percentage that's going to be, but I. I suspect um, that Pat Brown is probably wrong. I suspect that it'll be, you know, roughly half or even more. But but to what you're saying there, if I'm reading that answer correctly, is that it's not going to be the flexibility in the products and in the flavor that puts one over the other. You're saying here that plant-based meat will probably be more efficient, which I think is a way of saying affordable. Um, cell-based meat is going to more appeal to people who want, uh, you know, want that real animal experience. But you're, what you're, what I'm not hearing you say is, oh, well, look, if you want to eat bacon, you're going to need to grow it eventually. That you think those things are going to, you think we're going to ultimately be as capable manipulating plants into those or somewhat similar shapes. Yeah, no, it's structures. it's fascinating to go tour Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Like they are lousy with meat scientists. Um, they are hiring tissue engineers and meat scientists to help them restructure plants to capture literally everything that people like in terms of taste and texture about literally every type of meat. And I mean, it, maybe there's something about meat that the science of, of plant biology can't biomimic it, but that'd be pretty surprising. Um, I haven't talked with any meat scientists um, or any tissue engineers who think there's something about plants that we simply can't you know, biomimic meat with plants. We, we've really not put many resources into it. You know, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are the two main companies that have put re resources into it. Between the two of them, they haven't put a billion dollars into it total, into the R&D, probably on the order of, you know, a few hundred million dollars. And they're doing a pretty great job with burgers and they're making more and more advances with other products. So, no, I think, uh, I think with cell-based and with plant-based, we should be able, more optimistic than cautious, we should be able... Uh, to give people all of the cuts and everything that they like about me. Let me ask you about the regenerative part of it. Let's say that you're somebody who likes meat, who's not, who does not think that killing an animal for food is wrong, which is a, a position I understand, but does think the suffering you see in industrial agriculture is wrong. And and I get a lot of emails from people who this is the view, you know, that, yeah, like we all agree, confined animal feeding operations, that's terrible. But, you know, I hunt or my uncle has a ranch where they treat the cows well is it possible that over the same period of time we will see advances or be able to have a meat industry that feeds people roughly the amount of meat they want to eat and is just working off of regenerative meat, just working off of the kind of meat production that you or I or just a reasonable observer would say, yeah, that's like humane, that animal's leading an animal's life and then eventually getting killed in a, in a not that cruel way for food? I, I don't, I mean, I... <laughs> We eat such an astronomical amount of meat. No, I, I don't think, I mean, I think two things. The first is no, there's not enough land. There aren't enough resources. Um, nobody, literally nobody in the regenerative movement thinks that's possible. Um, if you talk with people like Michael Pollan or Joel Salatin or Frank Reese and other people who are sort of the icons of this movement, they say, no, people need to eat a lot less meat. So it's less meat, better meat is basically their mantra. And even those guys like, they're doing things that I think would, would cause an awful lot of people to be unsettled. Um, you know, I remember Michael Pollan was on Oprah um, and like the most humane imaginable 
slaughter of a cow they showed online. And Michael Pollan sort of uh, scolded the audience. He said, you guys are recoiling at that. You really shouldn't be eating eating meat if you recoil at that, if you can't even watch the most humane imaginable slaughter. So so the first thing is, no, they're just, you know, we couldn't do it um, anywhere near the level of meat. Uh, that people eat now, and then B, um, it would it just costs so much more to treat animals well. Like one of the things about intensive farming of animals is it's cheap. That's why we do it. You can get a lot more meat, and you can do it really, really inexpensively. So um, I think in the in the world that I envision, where in thirty years the vast majority of meat is plant based meat or it's cell based meat, um, I think there could be more regenerative agriculture than there is now. Uh, but that's because you know regenerative agriculture right now is just a, a small fraction of the overall meat industry. So the way you're framing it here is that the the future you're looking towards depends on which trade off, to the extent you consider it a trade off, you're you're most willing to make. That we could have the industrial agriculture system we have now. We have all the the meat we have now. You can eat as much of it you know as you as you eat now. But there's this externality of enormous cruelty and terrible environmental damage. You can have regenerative, but you're going to have to eat a lot less meat because of the price and the amount we can actually create given the land use and, and so on. Or you can have plant-based and cell-based. And the, the trade-off there, to the extent there is one, assuming assuming you are correct that the scientific hurdles and scaling hurdles will, will all be overcome, is that you know you might you have to get over the idea that it's made in a brewery or you know it's made out of um, you know beet hemo uh, heme right beet heme uh, or, or you know or whatever kind of ingredients yeah. go into it like that that's the landscape those are the those are the set of options we have for our, our future yes. future food yeah no I think I think that's right and I I mean I'm just uh, I mean if you look at what people eat and and why people eat it. Um, you know, the vast majority of people, they they eat food because it tastes great and it's reasonably priced and it's convenient. Like that's, you know, 100 percent of people take those three things into account and plant based meat and cell based meat are going to be you know, perfectly competitive. They're going to taste the same or better. I mean, that's one of the things that Pat Brown talks about. The meat industry sort of is, is limited by how far you can get with an animal. Uh, whereas with plant-based, they can continue to tweak and tweak and tweak until people actually prefer it, um, not just like it as much, but actually like it better. So um, because it's so much more efficient, it's going to cost less. Um, and then the market takes over and it becomes more and more convenient and becomes omnipresent, basically. Are there other countries that in their laws towards animals, their funding or approach to to the clean meat space are interesting to look at that have a very, very different equilibrium than we do? Well, I mean, you look at uh, we're we're super optimistic. I mean, we're super optimistic about the United States in terms of regulatory. Uh, but before Commissioner Gottlieb and Secretary Purdue started talking about how the U.S. wants to be a leader in cell-based meat, um, we were concerned and we were looking at other countries that might make a lot of sense for this. And uh, we're also looking not just at the U.S. for funding R&D, but looking at other countries for funding R&D. Um, and you look at countries like Israel that want to be food self-sustaining and Singapore, which is tiny, and in addition to wanting to be self-reliant for its food, is also technologically extraordinarily advanced. Uh, you look at China, which has such massive food safety issues um, and food security issues and uh, water issues um, and antibiotic issues. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think probably uh, for countries we're particularly enthusiastic about in terms of prospects for funding this R&D um, and for rolling out the regulatory red carpet, probably uh, China, Israel, Singapore uh, are right at the top of the list. Are there... Um 
products in this space that are not the ones that are kind of sexy and, and get all the attention, but but are, are things that you're interested in or think could have a really big impact, either a big scientific impact or just a big consumption impact? I mean, the the kind of the full-on meat replacements get a lot of attention, but but at your conference, I saw a lot of people doing interesting work on fillers like Paul Shapiro. Um, I saw people doing interesting work on dog foods. I mean, are there things out there beyond and impossible and to some degree Hampton Creek and a couple others that get a ton of attention? Are there things out there that people should be paying attention to either because they're a great product or because you think they're a product that has the potential to do great things? There are so many, I think, that have the potential to do great things. I mean, a, a company that uh, is rivaling uh, in terms of quality of product, the burger uh, of Impossible and Beyond that doesn't get a lot of play is Hungry Planet. Um, what they're doing, I think, is pretty exciting. Uh, very exciting. Uh, f- excited about a company called Good Catch that is working on tuna and other fish products, plant-based fish products. I'm super excited about both Blue Nalu and Finless, which are also focused on fish from the cell-based side. Uh, There's a company called Seattle Food Tech, uh, which is actually a GFI alum. One of our scientists left to found Seattle Food Tech, uh, and that's focused on really inexpensive chicken nuggets using new and different methods from extrusion. It's a chemical, it's a, uh, sorry, an engineer, a former mechanical engineer at Boeing uh, who came to work at GFI and then has gone in and formed Seattle Food Tech. And there are just lots of lots of very interesting things that are happening. And it just, for me at least, it underlines the degree to which both of these technologies are just so brand new. Uh, and sort of every new thing is extraordinarily exciting. So this is a question I ask when I'm doing reporting. I don't tend to ask it on the podcast, but usually I'm talking to people whose spaces I know better, um, whereas there's so much going on in your world that, that I'm just not uh, uh, aware of. Are there is there something I should have asked you here that I didn't something we should have talked about that that we didn't are there are there things here that people should know that we haven't covered I feel like we've done a pretty good job I mean like uh, GFI our main focus we focus on policy and we chatted about both the statutory and the regulatory work um, the thing that I you know that I really like to sort of hammer uh, is the fact that this doesn't need to be disruption. So when GFI started, we were talking about disrupting the meat industry. And I think both the most encouraging thing um, and also probably the most obvious, and yet I didn't notice it, uh, is that this is going to happen a lot more quickly if we have Tyson and Cargill and ADM and sort of the big food industry players on board. Um, And I have just been so incredibly gratified by the degree to which we have the food industry players on board, like they are excited about these technologies and uh, the science and technology sort of laying the groundwork that didn't exist the innovation, all of the startups and the amount of activity uh, and exciting work that's happening. Um, So, no, I don't think so. But I mean, people who want to be sort of have their finger on the pulse of it uh, should sign up for our e-newsletter, which they can do at GFI.org. And we also have uh, our gfi.org slash resources. If you go to that there, there's one that's essential reading, which can give you both a deep science as well as a sort of more um, an easier read on both the plant-based and the cell-based products. And if you click on the uh, video and audio, uh, you can watch Ezra's uh, moderating a panel at our conference last oh, year. How exciting. Um, people should check out the the essential resources. I, I'm not sure I would fully recommend watching a video cast of my panel. Um, it's a good panel, but uh, but 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 you can probably find more scintillating, more scintillating stuff online. But I do ask for books here. Give me your three books. Um, well, I, I really like you. Was moved by Melanie Joy's book. Uh, Why do we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows? Uh, and for people who haven't listened to it, I thought your podcast with her uh, was really quite spectacular. 
uh, for a book on this industry, on plant-based and cell-based meat. There really hasn't been much that's been written, uh, but there is a phenomenal book on the clean meat industry. And I guess sort of a, a disclaimer, I'm in it quite a bit. It covers GFI pretty extensively, uh, but it's the book Clean Meat by Paul Shapiro. It has an introduction from Yuval Harari. Yeah, which uh, I think is, uh, I both really like the book, but uh, Harari's introduction to that was also part of what helped me frame this. It's very much about this kind of technological moment and um, how it may, how it came about and how it may end. It's a it's a fascinating way of framing that book. Yeah, and Harari is a big proponent of both the, the plant-based uh, and the cell-based meat as a solution to industrial animal agriculture, which is a problem that he recognizes. He actually also wrote the introduction uh, to Melanie's book uh, in Israel. The, oh, really? The Israeli, oh, cool. Yeah, the Israeli um, edition of Melanie's book. So uh, Clean Meat by Paul Shapiro, um, I strongly recommend. And then I, I really still think Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Four was uh, was pretty. Did fantastic. you see the movie? Um, I yeah, I have seen the movie. I haven't seen it. What did you think of it? Um, I thought they did a really nice job with it. I thought they did a really nice job with it. So I mean, it. Uh, I mean, I, I guess a disclaimer there. I'm also in the movie. Um, well, you're so everywhere. Is, you, can't, you can't get you can't go anywhere in this space without running into you. So it's it's hard for me to you know to be non biased um, on the book or the movie because I have five or six pages in the book. Um, and then I also have uh, a few blurbs in the movie. I agree but... that that book is really moving. Um, yeah. I think that's like, it's actually my favorite of, of Stefan Farr's work. And he's done, obviously, other amazing work. But I think something he does in that book that is really interesting is he really tries to investigate this in a repertorial way from almost first principles. There is something about it that is novelistic as opposed to wonkish um, that I think really works. And just as a part of it that I've never forgotten about... Early on, he discusses the ways in which we teach ourselves to dismiss the intuitions that our children have or that we had as children. And whatever you think about meat and animals and the rest of it, I think there's something quite powerful about that. It's something I like in Melanie Joy's work, too, just trying to think about the ways in which we acculturate ourselves into things that maybe we shouldn't. And the way culture and the way politics and the way kind of broad ideologies work in that respect. And I think there's something very refreshing about how he treats that in the book. Yeah, I liked that. I also just liked how like sort of honest and kind of narrative it is like there are a fair number of sort of internal contradictions throughout the book that he just sort of grapples with in a way that I thought was really appealing. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed his novels, and I thought he just sort of brought that really sort of uh, friendly, thoughtful, human uh, way to the you know, method of, of telling the story of, of what it means that we eat animals and how they're treated and how he thinks about it and what it means sort of psychologically and emotionally. I just thought it, and it's just, a, it's just, a, he's just such a great writer. Like it's just, you know, it's appealing to read. Bruce Friedrich, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Bruce for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, to Jeff Geld at Vox Media. Uh, my engineer back in D.C. Uh, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.